you have your Bibles with you, would you turn to Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to look at the last section of verses 11 through 18. Let's, let's pray again. Father, I ask that, Lord, you would speak this morning, that, Father, you would speak to each of our hearts. Lord, each of us may need a different thing, a different word from you. Maybe it's an encouragement. Maybe it's an exhortation. Maybe it's a clarification. But, Father, would you do those things for each of us this morning? And, Lord, we desire not simply to have an aha moment, but, Father, we desire to have our hearts and our lives transformed by your power, by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, we can look at uh, these last group of verses a couple of different ways, organizationally. Verse 11 sort of introduces this last little section, and it tells us something about Paul's writing and that sort of thing. And then uh, 12 and 13 give us uh, sort of a, a case for Christ or what he's majoring on. Uh, the 13 through 15 is our emphasis is on Christ, and then 16 17 and 18 is a doxology or, or kind of wrapping it up in a prayer of honoring the Lord. So let's start off here in verse 11, and it says this. See with what large letters I've written to you by my own hand. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'd understand that uh, oftentimes, most of the time, Paul actually had, which was common in that day, a person who functioned as a secretary that he dictated the letter to, and then what was common in his case is that at the end of many of his letters, he would, with his own hand, write some things. And the question might be, well, why did he write it by his own hand? Some have said it was in order for people to know that it was a legitimate letter from Paul. There was some problems in the first century church where individuals would say, oh, I'm writing on behalf of Peter or Paul, but it wasn't really from them. Nothing's really new, right? We don't have anybody that ever forges anybody's identity at any time, do we? Anybody ever suffer that sort of thing where somebody charges your, your credit card and you wonder, how in the world did they do that? I never gave my credit card to a person. So there was those kinds of things. So perhaps one of the reasons that he wrote with uh, his own hand was to verify that. But uh, another reason might be that he wanted to include some personal greetings, and oftentimes we see those personal greetings. Uh, and then why in the world would he write with large letters? Some have speculated. We know that Paul had some eyesight issues, and perhaps uh, that was one of the reasons that he wrote with large letters, because if he wrote with small letters, he couldn't even read his own handwriting. <laughs> so he needed to write largely. Uh, sometimes it might be for a sense of emphasis that he wrote with larger letters, like you and I might capitalize something, you ever get the, your text on a cap locks accidentally and it looks like to the recipient that you're shouting at them and that's not your intention? So, or, or underlining or bolding things for emphasis. So that might be that he used large letters for that purpose. We find him in m many different letters, such as 1 Corinthians, writing with his own hand. We find him in Colossians chapter 4, again with his own hand. We also find in 2 Thessalonians, again, the salutation or the, the closing with his own hand. So the idea is that it wasn't uncommon for Paul to do that. It doesn't mean that these writings, this last part of it, was of less importance, is that Paul felt something specific. I tend to think that it was a dual purpose. One, I think that Paul did have poor eyesight and that he wanted to validate the letter as really from him, and so he wrote with larger letters because as a guy that wears glasses, I understand the difficulty when you don't have your glasses on, how hard it is to write your own name and understand what you just wrote. So if you wrote with larger letters, it might help. But I also think that he wanted to validate that this was really from me and that these things were important to him and he wanted to make sure that they're clarified. So it doesn't mean that Paul didn't write this letter. Uh, much like a, a, a administrative person might take dictation for the company CEO or, or the lawyer might have somebody else write the actual letters, but the lawyer says what to write, that sort of thing. And that's what Paul did oftentimes, and we see that. So he wants them to know, hey, I'm writing to you, and I want you to really understand this. And so 
Uh, that's what he did. Um, there's something unique or special about verse 11 here, and let's just kind of look at the moment at the moment of the heart of Paul. You see, he wrote this letter to the area of Galatia. You may recall that Galatia was a region, not a specific church, which is a little bit different than, say, Corinthians, where he wrote to the city at Corinth, or Ephesus, where he wrote to the church at the city of Ephesus, or Thessalonians, where he wrote to the church or the city of Thessalonica. This one's more of a region. So he wrote to the area of Galatia, but he was a distance away from them. But his heart was close to them. And there was a problem in the Galatian church that there were what we call Judaizers. Those were people who claimed to be believers in Jesus, who came out of the Jewish faith, but were demanding of others that you had to take on the Judaism, and specifically, in in this case, the rite of circumcision. If you were a Jew, if you were born Jewish as a male, on the eighth day you were circumcised. Now, if you became a Christian, if you didn't come from a Jewish background, but you became a Christian, circumcision meant nothing to you. But there were folks within the church that were saying, no, no, you have to take on these Jewish rite of circumcision. And maybe some of you came from a various religious backgrounds, maybe more of a liturgical background, where you were told certain things. In order to be a good Christian, you have to, or you can't. You have to wear long skirts. And guys, that's a problem for me. I don't like wearing long skirts. But it might be something like that, or you can't uh, watch movies, or you can't do this thing or that thing, where in that particular setting, the way it's communicated to some people, your style of dress or what you do in sort of your entertainment is more important than your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's backwards. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ that then influences our lifestyle. So just because somebody wears a certain style of clothing doesn't make them more spiritual. But that's what the Judaizers, those from the Jewish background, were trying to do to the new Christians. And so they would come along and they would follow Paul along when he went on these different missionary journeys, come by afterwards and try to re-educate the new believers. And we see that same thing happening today. A couple of years ago, we had a Greg Laurie Harvest Crusade here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And many of you participated in that. But you may have noticed that there would usually be a protester outside criticizing the gospel message that Greg Laurie had shared saying something along the lines of he didn't do it right, he didn't share this thing, he didn't do this thing. Now imagine somebody who doesn't know anything about Christianity just becomes a believer. They know that they, they are forgiven of their sins, and then immediately they're bombarded by somebody else saying, well, you didn't do it right, you didn't hold your breath long enough, or this thing or that thing. And they're seeking to pull people away from a genuine faith in the Lord to also become subject to their rules and regulations. And so Paul's writing back to these believers and saying, that's not the idea. You see, the believer does not need to obey in order to be saved. The believer does not need to obey in order to be saved. One classic example is the thief on the cross. He was on the cross. Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He had no opportunity to obey. But that doesn't excuse sinfulness because the one who is saved chooses or has a heart transformation to obey, but we got to get them in the right order. It's not the things I do that generates my salvation. It's my salvation, my walk in faith that generates a lifestyle that's in accordance or in agreement with what God has to say. Because my heart is filled with gratitude, because I recognize the depth of God's love for me and his grace or his empowerment to live that influences my lifestyle. And of course, the problem, and all of us have run across, I think, people like this, is where they put their great emphasis upon what they do or the right doctrine or how many books they've read or which translation of the Bible they, they are reading out of, as opposed to their faith in Christ first, as opposed to my actions, which when I focus on 
as an example, somebody says, well, I, I, I keep a kosher diet. If my focus is on keeping a kosher diet, then I become filled with pride because I don't eat dairy with meat or I don't eat these specific types of animals or this specific type of fish. And then somebody's filled with pride. Look, I'm more spiritual than you because I won't have a bacon cheeseburger. Now, if you feel convinced that you're not supposed to have a bacon cheeseburger, that's perfectly fine. But it doesn't make you more spiritual or less spiritual. What it is is our hearts right before the Lord. And as your hearts are right before the Lord, then your attitudes and your behavior should change. So pride becomes a huge issue, and that's what Paul addresses to the Galatians, is be on guard against pride. You see, pride is really self-satisfaction. Self-satisfaction in maybe your achievement, or your possessions, or your abilities. That's what self-pride is. Now, we can pride or boast in the cross, which is one of the phrases that we'll run across here this morning, that we can take great pride in the cross, but we'll understand the cross is also a place of great humility. But pride or boasting in my abilities or my denial of certain things or in my achievements or the things that I have. You here in America have a lot more stuff than people in most other parts of the world. We can be prone to pride or boasting because, well, we do it this way. But as Christians, we're not to be filled with pride. Many of you may recall the boxer, Muhammad Ali. Remember, he had changed his name. And if you know him or you're familiar with him, you know that he wasn't a person marked with humility, was he? He would frequently go around and say, I am the greatest. That was sort of his catchphrase. And we're told about a, he was flying in an airliner and he told the stewardess that he didn't have to put his seatbelt on because I'm the greatest. But she responded to him and said, Mr. Ali, you have to fasten your seatbelt. And he said, no, no, I don't. I'm Superman. I don't need to put on a seatbelt. And then she responded, she was a smart woman, She said, if you're Superman, then you don't need an airplane. You see, that pride can lead us to influence how we behave with one another. There's another story of a woman who was on a sightseeing tour, and she's from Peoria, wonderful town, but she went to Washington, D.C., and the bus driver was taking her all around and showing her the different monuments and the different buildings in Washington, D.C., and they would pass by the Pentagon, and he said, look, it took us you know, X million dollars and this much time to build it. And she said to him, well, if we'd done it in Peoria, we would have done it for less and faster. And then he took him over to another monument. Uh, Maybe it was the Lincoln Memorial. And he described how it was constructed and how much money it took and how much time. And again, she said, well, you know, if we built that back in Peoria, we would have done it in less time for less money. And then Going through the tour, they pass by the Washington Monument. If you're familiar with the Washington Monument, it's this huge obelisk sticking up. And he didn't say a word. And they just drove by. And finally she says, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's that one there? And the bus driver says to her, I don't know. It wasn't there yesterday. Implying that Washington, D.C. is better than Peoria. <laughs> okay? So you get the idea. You see pride or arrogance. And all of us can be prideful. All of us can be arrogant from time to time. But what we need to do is be humble before the Lord. So moving on to verse 12, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised. See, they want to, this would be the Judaizers, those who are following after Paul, they're saying you have to be circumcised, but what's their motivation? They want to make a good showing in their flesh. You see, they want to compel you to be circumcised, only that you may not suffer persecution for the sake of the cross. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but the desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So here's the idea. They want to go around to say to everyone else, I got him to be circumcised. Aren't I super important? 
Now, even, it, Paul says, even those who are circumcised, in other words, they come from the Jewish faith when they were eight years old, or eight days old, they were circumcised. They themselves don't even keep the rest of the law. They only keep certain portions of the law. Now, in Israel today, they have um, different things, elevators, for example, in hotels. It's called a Sabbath or Shabbat elevator. Or when they have radios and lights and things like that. You see, if you're following all the interpretations that the Jews have for the laws, on the Sabbath day, you can't do any work and you can't strike a fire. So their interpretation is that when you push the button on the elevator, that's a little electrical thing that's starting a fire and it's doing some work. And so you can't do that. So the Shabbat elevator literally stops at every floor. So if you're on the 10th floor, guess what? The elevator stops at every floor, but you haven't touched a thing. The interesting thing is tourists, Jewish tourists from other parts of the world will come and they'll stay in a hotel like this, but yet the rest of their lives, they don't live that way. They just live that way when they're on their Holy Land trip. In India, as an example, there are individuals, they're, they're, they're dedicated to different gods uh, and different gods in India. And India has millions of gods, and they do certain behaviors. Some of them is to shave their head to show their devotion, but they only shave their heads when they're on the pilgrimage to go to this God because they want something from this God. But the rest of their lives, they live like hell. But for that week or that day, they dedicate themselves. And what Paul is saying and what Jesus is saying to all of us, I don't want you for one day. I don't want you for a week. I want you 24-7 to be following me. But there were others that were trying to twist people's arms to have them be circumcised so that they would feel better. In other words, I convinced somebody else to keep kosher. Aren't I important? I convinced somebody else to be circumcised. Aren't I important? Is the idea. The legalist pretended to be motivated out of a concern for somebody else, but although it was really for themselves or what they were able to compel somebody else. And the idea to compel somebody is that's the wrong thing. It's not wrong for somebody to say, hey, I feel like I want to be circumcised. That wasn't so much the issue. It was the compelling and to think that being circumcised made you more spiritual. Just like today, somebody might say, well, I'm more spiritual than somebody else. And so I only listen to Gregorian chants. Well, that's wonderful if you like Gregorian chants. If you don't know what Gregorian chants are, don't worry about it. It's just kind of a melodic, you know, you don't really want to know them. You know, for those of you who are music majors, you, you have, you've, you've had to listen to them. Or maybe I only listen to, sometimes in the church world, we only sing hymns. Well, what's a hymn? Well, it's religious music, some people might say, or it's in this big hymnal. What we oftentimes don't understand is that when the hymns were originally written, they were written to be contemporary at the time. But today we might say, well, I don't like that contemporary music. It has to be hymns. It can only be an orchestra or it can only be a, a, an organ or a choir. It can't be drums and guitars. Well, see, we're putting on a false facade. Now, there's wonderful lyrics in the hymns. I'm not dismissing hymns. By any means, there are some great theological lyrics written in those hymns. But when we begin to evaluate, quote unquote, our music by certain styles, then we're forcing a false narrative on people. There's a denomination that refuses to do any sort of music. They think they're more spiritual because we don't have musical instruments. That's fine if you want to sing without musical instruments. There's no problem with that. It doesn't make you more spiritual or less spiritual if you use instruments in your worship time or your music. But when we overly focus on certain things, we lose sight of the whole thing. Because our church, we do use instruments, so therefore sometimes we might be tempted to say, I'm more spiritual than those guys that say no instruments. And they look at us the same way. Well, we're more spiritual than you are because you guys use instruments and we don't. And we miss the whole point. 
The whole point is to be focused on Christ as opposed to these different rules or things that we've made up for each other. So, And then they would oftentimes try to get people to be circumcised for the purpose that they themselves would not suffer persecution. Here's the idea. As a Christian, Christianity at this time was not an accepted or endorsed religion in the Roman government. Now remember, at this time, Rome was in charge of the world at that time. And so if you did anything in opposition to the Roman government, you could be open to persecution. And so Judaism was, had been accepted. Now, they thought Jews were weird, but they accepted them, and they weren't openly persecuted. So if you could take on the facade of looking like a Jewish person by being circumcised, you could avoid persecution. But here's the thing. We have to be followers of Jesus Christ, and we in our culture today, sometimes as Christians, are tempted to take on a form of something else other than just simply following Jesus. Sometimes we're tempted to to take on the attitudes or the behavior of the world around us, even though it's unbiblical, for the sake of not feeling uncomfortable. Let's be clear. With the gender identity issues, with a whole bunch of different uh, ideas on gender identity or sexual preferences or things like that, as a Christian, oftentimes we are forced or feel obligated not to voice biblical opinions on that for the sake of not starting an argument. That's not the same as outright persecution, but it's the same vein that you and I might experience. And we need just to be biblical. We don't need to be rude or offensive on purpose, but we do need to be biblical. And people tend to want you to agree with them. From many of the perspectives of those that endorse abortion or homosexuality or various ungodly lifestyles, if you don't agree with them, they interpret that as if you hate them. Now, the Bible is quite clear. We're to love the individual, but it doesn't mean that we have to endorse their sinful lifestyle. There's a big difference between that, but oftentimes that's why you'll hear people respond, well, you hate me. No, I don't hate you. I don't agree with your attitude. I don't agree with your lifestyle. I don't agree with your opinions. But because I disagree with your opinion doesn't mean I hate you. We live in a culture where we are being told that your opinion has to match mine. Otherwise, you hate me. What happened to the day, and it used to happen not too long ago, that we could disagree with one another but not hate each other? And that's where God is at. So that's where this idea comes from, that they would seek to force people to be circumcised so that they themselves would feel better about themselves and they wouldn't suffer persecution. But going on to verse 14, he says this, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. In all of these things, Paul is saying, I want to boast, and we could say pride, in what? The cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. Now, culturally, the most humiliating way for somebody to die during the time frame that Paul was writing this would be a crucifixion. It was the most humiliating thing. It it wasn't a, a death of honor. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. It was something that would be done publicly, and it would be done purposefully to humiliate the individual. In that day, that culture, to be naked or to be exposed like that was extremely humiliating. So what did they do? They stripped the prisoner of all their clothing, and they stuck them up on this wooden cross, normally on the outskirts of town along the main road. The Romans did it, as a sign, don't you dare fight against the Roman government because this is what will happen to you. It was the most humiliating thing that anybody could go through. And here's Paul saying, I boast in the most humiliating thing that we could see. 
And that needs to be our attitude. People may not like all that Jesus represents, but may we have the great humility to say, this is the most valuable thing. You see, we live differently than the rest of the world. Now, we're not supposed to be strange or weird, but the attitude of our hearts, our mindset is radically different than the world that we live in. We are saying heaven is real. I'm a sinner, and the only way I can get to heaven is by faith in Jesus Christ, which is contrary to everything else the world tells us. If you're of somebody who's been influenced by Eastern thinking, you might think about reincarnation or what we sometimes call karma, that if I do good, good will happen to me. But that's not a biblical thinking. We might say, but I need to figure out how my mind works. And what God would say is, no, you don't. You need to figure out what God has to say about this. The priorities in our world is get more stuff, get more education, get a larger family, get more toys, get more money, get a bigger career. And God says to you and I, no, the most important thing is your relationship with Jesus Christ. So we are called to boast or take great pride in a good way about the most humiliating thing. Our leader died. Our leader died on the cross in ultimate humility. And he did it willingly. It wasn't that he was forced to do it. It wasn't that he didn't have the ability to overcome. He did. Jesus could have called down legions of angels. Now, legion is a big group of angels. He could have called down thousands of angels to defend himself. Now, when we read through the Bible, we read about some of these angels. Some of them are quite, quite powerful beings. And Jesus could have called them to help him. Jesus himself, if he's able to walk on water, to raise Lazarus from the grave, to feed 5,000 with a few scraps of fish and bread, could he not have delivered himself from the cross? The answer is he could have, but he chose not to. So we are living according to a lifestyle. We are living according to a thinking process that's radically different than the world around us. And that's okay. So our boasting or our pride is not in my abilities. Maybe it's, you know, in the world that we live in, people are proud and boastful about different things. I mentioned Muhammad Ali. He was always saying how great he is. You know, float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. And he was a very good boxer. He was the world championship champion at his time. And there's other people. You know, whether it's a football star, there's some football stars that are holding out in order to get more money. And we, we, we go and we pay lots of money to watch them, in, in, watch them run around. Men in tights running around, chasing a little ball around that's weird shaped. But we, I mean, we do that sort of thing. But we then we look at actors or actresses and we go, Wow, we pay all kinds of money to see this short Tom Cruise guy jump around and pretend like he can do all kinds of stuff. Or, or whatever it might be, or musicians. Or we are enamored with somebody because they've got a degree and they've got 20 letters after their name. And we go, wow, you must really be important. Now, there's nothing wrong with being recognized for your education or your athletic ability, your artistic ability. But when we take pride in those sorts of things, or we start to think of other people as more important than us because of their athletic ability or their artistic ability or because of their education or because of the money they have, then we're missing the whole point. Paul says here, I boast, I take pride in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, in Roman society at the time, the word crucifixion was not mentioned in polite society. They had a phrase that would translate roughly something like this. They hung the person on an unlucky tree. They didn't say crucify. They didn't say the cross. In polite society, like today, when somebody dies, we oftentimes things, say things like, well, they passed away. Instead of saying, well, he died in excruciating death and he was screaming out in great pain and agony. We don't like to say that. Most of us don't even like to think about death. 
For a Christian, death is to be graduation time. For a Christian, death is the final act before I get to enter into my eternal home. It should, for us a Christian, be a glorious thing, a wonderful thing. But in our society, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about life after death. We obviously don't want to talk about hell. Many people will believe in the idea of a heaven, but they deny the existence of a hell. And the Bible is quite clear. We are all destined to hell unless we are rescued dramatically by Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the cross is a glorious thing. But when we talk about the cross, we're not talking about just a piece of wood or a tree someplace. It's a doctrine. It's a theology. It's an instruction. It's a thought process when we talk about the cross. The cross is a glorious thing. It means the glorious doctrine of justification freely. Justification, that forgiveness of our sins. It's a sort of a theological word. To say that I'm freely forgiven of my sins by faith or through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's what we mean by the cross. We don't just mean a a piece of wood or that somebody died. When we say the cross, we're talking about this theological statement of, of that Christ died on my behalf. It was given to me freely and that I've received this gift. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the cross. And Paul says, I glory in that. I boast in the cross. I boast in the thing that the world rejects. And the cross is not more, it's much more, excuse me, than a piece of wood. The cross is my free gift of salvation that comes by faith through Jesus Christ. It's the most glorious thing. We as Christians can argue about different things, but you can't be a Christian without understanding that Christ died on the cross for you as a substitute for your sin. If you can't get there, then you're not a Christian. We as Christians, sometimes we argue about what translation of the Bible we should read. We argue about what day of the week we might meet. We argue about styles of music. And I get that. And we have, there's room for our preferences. But if you don't come to the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, who freely died in your place to forgive you of your sin, if you don't receive that as truth, not in your mind, but in your heart, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and ask him to forgive you, then you're not a Christian. You might be a good person that goes to church, does lots of things, but if you can't come to the point of the cross, that's what distinguishes a Christian from a non-Christian. And Paul says, this is the most important thing in my life, the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. What the world has rejected, the world says to us, that's foolishness. That's silliness. Some man 2,000 years ago died on a cross. Whoop-de-doo, lots of people died. Well, there's certain significance about the death followed up by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, Jesus told us he would die, and he told us he would raise again three days later. And that's exactly what Jesus did. The disciples got into trouble because they would go around and say, Jesus, that you guys crucified, he rose from the grave. I saw him with my own eyes. I touched him. He's transformed my heart. He's forgiven me of my sin. And I'm going to live forever in heaven with him when I stop existing here on earth. And I access this. I access this eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. It seems ridiculous to somebody who has not been spiritually enlightened or renewed. But that's what we're to take pride in. That's the most important thing in our lives. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? It's not about the color of your skin. It's not about your education, how much money you do or don't have, how many languages you can speak. It's do you know Jesus Christ? And if you do, then you're part of the family of God. If you don't, you're invited to join and be part of that family of God. All it takes is you responding in faith, saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to be forgiven of you. There is nothing more worldly than trying to make a good showing in the flesh. 
there's nothing more worldly than saying to everyone else, look at my degrees. There's nothing more worldly than saying to everyone else, look at me, don't I look good? There's nothing more worldly than saying, look at all the possessions I have. Look at the house I have. Look at the cars I have. There's nothing more worldly than saying, look at the people I know. Nothing more worldly than saying, look at the languages I can speak or where I grew up. That's the world and that's the flesh. Now, if you're educated or highly educated, wonderful. But glory in the cross, not in your education. If you can speak five or six languages, praise the Lord. That's wonderful. But glory in your relationship with Christ, not in your languages. If you have tremendous skills, maybe as an artist, a musician, a craftsman, wonderful. But make sure to glory in your relationship with Jesus Christ, not in your ability or your possessions or what other people think of you. That's the difference. Our problem in our culture, our society, is that we tend to fear men more than the fear or respect for Jesus Christ. You see, to fear men or to ask them what to think, and this is part of what's happening in our culture today. We have people telling us what is right to think and what's wrong to think. To fear men or to ask men what it is that I'm supposed to think. To ask their instructions on how we're to speak. Political correctness. I can't talk about heaven or hell. I can't talk about sin. When we ask the world around us how we're supposed to speak, then we are fearing men. We're asking for their opinion more than what God has to say. And that's just baseless. You and I are not called to be weird people just to be weird, but we are to be different than the world that we live in. You might see all kinds of things on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or something else in the news, and it's telling you constantly, this is how you're supposed to think. You and I instead are to be looking at our Bibles and saying, okay, God, how am I supposed to think? Maybe you grew up with certain ideas. Some of them may be right when you line it up with God's word. Some of them may be wrong. you got to line it up with God's word. That's our standard, not the world that we live in, not what the news media says or talk radio says. Or uh, It seems ridiculous to me. We have what we call celebrities now, and they're celebrities because a bunch of people follow them on Instagram. So their only claim to fame is that they can pose in a picture and look nice, and yet we are following them because of their opinion. That just seems ridiculous to me as a culture. And then we're all excited because somebody posted this thing or that thing. No, we need to be following what God's word says. And there will be times when God's word says something different than what people on social media say. There will be times where God's word says something different than what politicians say and that what entertainers will say. And you and I need to be people who are following God, not the entertainment industry or sports figures. It's amazing to me. I am amazed at a guy that can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour. But who in the world made him an expert on other things than other than throwing a baseball? But yet we as a culture, well, because so-and-so throws a baseball, he must know about life. That's silly. Just because somebody can run faster or jump higher than somebody else doesn't make them a theologian. And, but yet, because somebody can jump so high or they can sing or they have a great appearance, we elevate them to the point of, well, I have to follow them. They're wealthy, so they must know what's right and wrong. I'm sorry, they don't. Unless they're a believer in Jesus Christ and they're telling you what God's word says. So the, the Phil Donahues, the Dr. Phil, the, the Oprahs of the world, they have no clue what's going on. They got a lot of people convinced that they do, but they don't. You and I need to be following God's word. And so, we, again, we need to boast in the cross. And he goes on here to say this. 
God forbid, verse 14 again, that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me. Crucified means put to death. It means the world no longer has control or influence over me. I'm not saying the weather doesn't make you hot and sticky or cold or things like that, but I'm saying the standards of the world. When we say the world, we're not talking about the globe. We're not talking about the weather. What we're talking about is the standards and the systems of the world that we live in. Right now, in our world that we live in, people are trying to tell us what is moral and what's not moral. We have people telling us that whatever sexual preference you have, it's okay. We have people right now that are trying to tell us that sexual activity with children is just a normal, natural behavior. And God says, no, that is sick. It is a sin. And we as a culture, as a world, need to repent from that. We have people in our culture that says, it's okay to sleep around, to have as many partners as possible. And it doesn't matter whether it's homosexual, heterosexual, or whatever else. That's wrong. Don't be influenced by the world around you. We live in this world. We're not to hate that individual, but we need to continue with a godly standard. When the world says to you, all of your problems can be fixed if you just follow this philosophy. We need to understand that's wrong. What we need to follow is God himself. We are to be dead to this world system. In other words, when politicians or entertainers or influencers tell us something, we're not to follow them unless, of course, they're following God's word. Just like, let's pretend for a moment, somebody was an alcoholic and they couldn't pass by a can of beer without having a six-pack. And a six-pack led to a case. And a case led to a kegger. And the person just was addicted. They couldn't control themselves. But let's suppose for a moment, this is an imaginary story, that they die. They're laying there in the casket and you walk by and you give them a six-pack of beer. How tempted are they at that moment? Are they going to consume that beer? Absolutely not, because they're dead. That's the attitude we're to have towards the world system around us. It no longer has influence over me. So just because somebody says, again, I don't want to keep harping on the sexual sins, but let's talk about greed. Then how about let's pick on a different sin. Greed, selfishness. I, everything's about what happens to me. And that's what the world system says. You know that you're doing well if you have more stuff. And God says, no. It's about a relationship with Christ. It's not about how much stuff you have. And so we're to reject the world system around us that says you just need to have more stuff. Instead, what we need to have is more of Jesus living in my life. And that's the attitude that we need to have. We need to consider ourselves as dead to the influences of the world system around us, but alive to Christ. And so Paul says here, I'm crucified to the cross. Or excuse me, I'm crucified to the world, and the world to me. The world doesn't like us. If we're following Jesus, the world doesn't like us. Verse 15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. They made a big deal about whether you're circumcised or not. And Paul says it doesn't matter. That's not the important issue. The issue is, are you a new creation in Christ Jesus? That's the issue. It's not about whether you like King James or Old King James or New American Standard or NIV. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you following and understanding what God's word has to say to you? That's the important thing. Christianity is something that God does in us, not something that we do for God. That's a good definition of what it means to be a Christian. Christianity is something that God does in us, not something that we do to please God. Whether it be dietary laws or dress codes or styles of music, it's about what God has done in our hearts and our lives. That's what it's about. So may you and I be people that are determined to follow God no matter what the world system says. 
and my little flicker thing isn't working. There we go. Christianity is something God does in us, not something that we do for God. Let's wrap it up here in a few short verses here. In verse 16, as many as walk according to this rule, peace, mercy will be upon them and upon the God of Israel. According to this rule, it's not a set of rules like a, a regulations, but it's more the sense of a rule or a guide. In other words, are you following what God's word has to say? If you are a carpenter or a builder, maybe you've seen people use something like this. It's much bigger. This is just a level. And it shows you whether something is level or not. Back in the ancient world, they used things like plumb bobs, which just gave you whether something's vertical or not. The Egyptians built the pyramids based on something like this, whether something was right or wrong. It's a rule. It's a standard. You might take a measuring stick or a tape measure to see how long something is. Have you ever done this? Maybe you're moving and you're trying to get the couch into your third-store apartment. If you're wise, you'll take a measuring tape to see if it fits first before you walk it all the way up the third floor to find out it doesn't fit in the doorway. Okay? So that's the idea when it says rule here. It's not a list of rules that we need to follow, but it's God's instructions. And then peace and mercy will be upon us and upon Israel of God. And we'll go to the, just the uh, title slide, if you would, please. From now, verse 17, from now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. So when he says marks of the Lord Jesus, it doesn't mean that he has the, the scars in his hands like Jesus had. What it means is that Paul was beat up for the sake of the gospel. And he gave us a list in 2 Corinthians, of, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 of the things that he was whipped, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, and so forth. And physically, he was beat up. Bruises, crooked nose, whatever else it might be. Maybe he walked with a limp. Maybe he got up every morning with a sore back, sore legs because of results of beatings. And he says, That's, I bear that. You say I'm not sold out for Jesus? <laughs> Where did this broken arm come from? Where did this black eye come from? And so forth. And that was sort of what he was saying. And then he concludes with this, verse 18. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This grace. Grace is a wonderful word that we need to fully understand. We know according to Ephesians chapter 2 that we're saved by grace. Uh, Grace could be defined as unmerited favor. You got a gift. You didn't deserve it. I like thinking of it as God's resources at Christ's expense. But grace is for salvation, but it's so much more than just for salvation. We need grace for Christian living. We think of grace as somebody who's kind and polite, or maybe we name somebody grace. But no, what grace is, is God's empowerment to live for him. We need grace or God's empowerment for dealing with one another and dealing with the world around us. You see, God's empowerment or God's grace will carry us until the day that we're home with Jesus. And so we need this grace of God. We need God's empowerment. Grace is the power of God to forgive us. None of us deserve heaven. None of us deserve forgiveness, but it's because of God's grace because of his free gift that he gives us forgiveness of our sins. Grace is the power of God to enable us to live lives that are pleasing to him or holy lives. God, by his power, by his strength, wants to empower you to live for him, to cleanse your mind, to renew your mind, to think the way God thinks about things. Grace is the power of God to enable us to live a life God's way. We, I spent most of this morning telling you that we need to follow what God's word says. But how do we do that? We need the supernatural empowerment of Jesus Christ, a word that we would call grace. We need the supernatural empowerment of God to be able to live a godly life, a God-pleasing life in a Christ-rejecting world. For you and I to maintain our righteous standards before God, to live a life that's pleasing to God in a world 
that is constantly bombarding you with other thoughts and standards. You need the supernatural empowerment of God by his Holy Spirit, what we might call grace, to live a life that's honoring to him. We need God's power to deal with one another. If you're married any longer than 30 minutes, you know that you need grace in dealing with your spouse. And I'm not saying your spouse is a bad person, but you just have different thoughts, different ideas. He thinks something, but he doesn't say it. She says a whole bunch, and I don't really want to listen to it. Whatever it might be, we need God's empowerment to deal with one another. And then, if you have children, you love your children, but boy, do you need a lot of God's empowerment to deal with your own children. I think God gives you a supernatural God-inspired love for them because there are times when they really get on your last nerve. Mommy, 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 daddy, dad, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Twelve hours, 25 hours of, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. I got to go to the potty. I got to go to the potty. We just stopped five minutes ago, whatever it might be. And that's silly, easy stuff in comparison to you and I living in a world that says to you, you have to look out for yourself first, and here's what's acceptable and unacceptable, and it's contrary to the Word of God. We need God's grace, God's empowerment to be able to live a godly, Christ-centered life in the midst of a generation that rejects God. I love my, our nation. I think it's one of the greatest nations in the world. But it is a nation that is in moral decline. It's a nation as a whole that rejects God as their Lord and Savior. It's a nation where people are pushing agendas to reject God, to reject Christian standards. And you and I need the empowerment of God to live a godly life in the midst of a nation that seems seems to be on a running as fast as they can to run as far away from God as they possibly can. Now, the good news is that makes the conditions ripe for revival. It makes conditions ripe for people to turn to Christ. So don't give up praying for your family members. Don't give up praying for your nation, your neighbors, because that neighbor that says everything is okay on the outside oftentimes is dying on the inside. And they may even cuss you out, say, I want to have nothing to do with you. That's just a sign that God's working on the heart. Otherwise, they wouldn't feel convicted. They wouldn't be bothered about your stand to follow Christ. So we live in a Christ-rejecting world, but each individual is on the verge of coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in my humble opinion, that's what our nation needs. It needs a generation, a fresh generation of people that are surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We don't need more politicians. We don't need more laws. What we need is hearts that are set on fire for Jesus Christ. 